Hi, everybody. Here's a bonus episode of The Arthur Brooks Show in your feed. This is a conversation that I had with Simon Sinek about the idea of loving your enemies. Actually, it's a conversation that Simon had with me. Now, if you're not familiar with Simon Sinek, he's the New York Times bestselling author of Start With Why and Leaders Eat Last, and we've been friends for a long time. This was recorded in front of a live audience at the 92nd Street Y in New York City a couple of weeks ago, and it was really a great conversation. We talked about contempt in our modern society, and now it's it's wrecking our relationships and even hurting our happiness. We talked about the fact that you can't be persuasive when you're insulting other people, that treating other people with love and respect is the only way you're going to have a chance of convincing anybody of anything. We go through step by step how loving your enemies is an incredibly practical and happiness-inducing strategy for each one of us to adopt in our lives. So I hope you enjoy it. Here it is. Good evening. I am Mark Lipschultz, the Chairman Emeritus of the Board of the 92nd Street Y, and it's my privilege tonight to welcome you to this very special event. Uh, Love Your Enemies, Arthur Brooks in Conversation with Simon Sinek. Let me just uh, quickly note, this is being recorded for Arthur Brooks' podcast series, so when we come to Q&A, well, just keep in mind, we're going to be recording the program. Um, let me tell you a little bit about each of the two gentlemen who we're very lucky to have here tonight. Uh, Simon Sinek is a trained ethnographer, has devoted his life to sharing his thinking in order to help leaders and organizations inspire action. From American Airlines to Disney, from big business to entrepreneurs to police forces, Simon has had the honor of sharing his ideas with an array of leaders and organizations in nearly every industry. He's also the author of multiple best-selling books, including Start With Why, Leaders Eat Last, Together Is Better, and Find Your Own Why. Find Your Why, excuse me. Uh, And that's not this why, although we do hope you'll find that. Um, (laughs) So... Uh, His new book, The Infinite Game, will be released in June 2019, so please be on the lookout for that if we can get him back here to talk about his book. Uh, But Simon will be a wonderful part of tonight's program, uh, speaking with with Arthur Brooks, who is a columnist for The Washington Post, uh, host of the podcast The Arthur Brooks Show, as I mentioned, that we'll be recording for tonight, and president of the American Enterprise Institute, a public policy think tank in Washington, D.C., I also have the great personal privilege of counting him as a very dear and longtime friend. Previously, he was the Lewis Bantle Professor of Business and Government at Syracuse University. His latest book that we'll be focusing on tonight, Love Your Enemies, outlines a series of practical strategies for leaders in all areas of life who wish to subvert the culture of contempt and usher in a new era of American progress, something I'm quite sure we all are very sympathetic to. Love Your Enemies will be on sale in the lobby afterward, and a book signing will take place. I encourage you all to pick up a copy and read it. It is terrific. So without further ado, please join me with the 92nd Street Y in welcoming Arthur and Simon. I'm going to put your book like that. All right, that's good. (laughs) Uh, thanks, everyone, for coming. Um, it's a particular thrill for me. Um, I'm a huge fan of Arthur's and of the way he thinks. Um, and when I heard that he was, he, I, I knew that he was writing the book when he was writing it. And 
it was one of those things where you think, why hasn't this been written yet? Why, isn't any, why has no one else written this uh, book before? So, so glad you did write it. Thank you. Um, it was a relief to me to know that nobody had written it by the time I published yeah, it. It's, that isn't, that, <laughs> yeah, that's always a plus. That's definitely yeah. a plus. Um, so what we thought we would do tonight is um, have Arthur share a little bit about um, uh, how he came about the idea and what his, what his thoughts are on how to uh, cure some of the challenges we have in our country today. Um, and then we'll field some of your questions afterwards. Um, if you could, um, can you share the story of New Hampshire, which I think is so good that really sets the stage for, for this idea? Thank you, Simon. And then the admiration that I have for you, as you know, is unalloyed. We've been friends for a number of years now. Years. And we met uh, at a kind of a, a political event that were a lot of protesters outside. And we felt mutually under siege. And it was one of these bunker things where we bonded over um, an event where there were people picketing outside. It's great, and and your your books have had a huge impact on me. So thank you, thank for, you. thanks very much. Thank you, um, and thanks to all of you, by the way. Um, so what Simon's referring to is an incident that stimulated this book, Love Your Enemies, and and most of you know that the idea Love Your Enemies is an ancient and subversive concept that comes from almost every major religious tradition. The idea that it's not good enough to love your friends because that's easy. You need to love people who don't love you and that civility and tolerance are not high enough standards. They're actually garbage standards. You know, it's one of the things that I point out in the book is if I said, hey, Simon, my wife Esther and I, we, we're civil to each other. He'd say, dude, you need counseling. <laughs> or, you know, that my employees, that they tolerate me, he'd say that's a big problem. Mm. We need a higher standard, mm. and, and that's what I'm seeking in this. And I got started thinking about this in 2014. Um, when I started to recognize that there was a, a, a political train coming down the tracks that was not good for America or indeed for the world, I was doing a, a speech in New Hampshire, uh, a conservative event. I do a lot of 150 or so speeches a year, and you know, sometimes they're very progressive audiences at universities, and sometimes they're non-political, sometimes they're conservative. And it was the latter group. And 700 conservative activists in the audience. And I was talking about politics and, and economics and foreign policy. And I stopped in the middle because you know, I was actually the only non-candidate on the schedule. Everybody else was running for president. I mean, in 2014, half of America was running for president and, or was going to. And, uh, and, and I thought as I was sitting backstage listening to the speeches, and they were doing what politicians always do, throwing red meat out into the audience and, and saying, you're right, and the other guys are idiots. Hmm. So I thought, I don't have to run for anything except my past. And what can I do that would make it better? So I, I made this little plan. In the middle of the speech, I stopped and I said, now, I know that the things that I'm saying might be sympathetic ideas to all of you in the audience, but I want you to remember the people who are not here because they don't agree with us politically, political progressives. And I want you to remember that they're not stupid and they're not evil. They're just Americans who disagree with us on public policy. And I knew it wasn't going to be an applause line. <laughs> but there was an applause line that followed from somebody else who said, this lady, she said, I think they're stupid and evil. And there's applause. And I didn't take offense. It was, it was like a dumb joke, right? But, but here's what I thought at that moment. It was a kind of an epiphany for me, actually, because my mind at that moment went to Seattle, which is my hometown. Seattle, as many of you know, is the most progressive city in America. 
My father was a college professor, and my mother was a painter in Seattle. What do you think their politics were? And I realized that that lady was insulting my mom. And, and I, I took it personally. My dad used to say when I was a kid that the mark of moral courage is not standing up to the people with whom you disagree. That might be important. That's good. It's meritorious. But it's not, it doesn't require courage to stand up against people you, with whom you disagree. Moral courage comes from standing up to people with whom you agree on behalf of those with whom you disagree. Mm. And I thought to myself, this is the secret to saving this country. Not doing what people are doing here, which is trashing the other side when they're not present. Mm. It's standing up and saying, I don't want you to talk that way about the people with whom we disagree. Mm. Because that's what makes a great country. And that, my friends, is a mark not of civility and not of tolerance. And, and it's not even agreement, because agreement's terrible. Agreement's monopoly. It's not even interesting. Mm. You've got to disagree. Mm. It's love. Mm. And that's what set me on the path to write this book, mm. to do the research that actually talks about the brain science and the behavioral science about how can we do this? How can we be happier? Mm. Mm. How can we be more successful? Mm. And by the way, how can we be more persuasive? Because it turns out that nobody in history has ever been uh, insulted into agreement. Yeah, I, th I think people forget that you, you don't make peace with your friends. You can only make peace with your enemies. Indeed. And, um, and that um, the leadership or the courage is for, can come from either side, but it's the one who sort of extends the olive branch first rather than demanding concessions before the olive branch will be uh, That's right, extended. and if we're, look, if we're in the business of if we talk about contentious things, which you and I do sometimes, yeah. and, and some people in the audience do, actually we all do in America today, because we're always talking about controversial things. If you're not, it means you're around too many people who agree with you. And either it's virtually, it's online, or it's in person, or it's around the Thanksgiving table or something. And you know, the job, if you really believe in something, your heart's in it, should be persuasion. Mm. If it's not persuasion, then it's just virtue signaling or, or scratching an itch. And you're not going to be persuasive unless you show love, ever. So there's much written and there's much already talked about about uh, media echo chambers that indeed we are surrounding ourselves with people who agree with us and we only tune in to hear the things that we know that we'll agree with for the most part. Right. Um, and it can rile us up and get us incensed against the, the opposition. So, so how, how, what have you learned in, 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 in this research about Persuasion. What is? What are we doing? What can we do better? What can the media do better? How, how do we actually persuade people rather than bash them over the head? So to begin with, we have to recognize the problem in the way that we communicate with each other politically. And one of the things that I talk about is to start by saying, are we too angry? And the answer is no. Anger is actually not a problem. Um, anger is, believe it or not, not correlated with separation or divorce in married couples. Anger is uncorrelated with divorce. Which is great. You know, I'm married to a Spaniard. Thank God anger is uncorrelated with divorce. <clears throat> um, what's correlated with divorce? Um, because, you know, marital discord is, is the ultimate metaphor for all, you know, human interaction. And, you know, I, 
I, I went to one of the wisest people that I know about this, which is the world's leading expert in marital reconciliation. It's a guy named John Gottman. He teaches, he teaches at the University of Washington in Seattle. He's a, a, a marriage therapist and a social psychologist. He runs the Gottman Marriage Laboratory. It's great. It's, I think it's funny that he runs a laboratory for marriage. I know. Yeah. I know, no. But what he does in this laboratory is he studies why people break up. And he's brought, to, in the process of this, him and his wife, Julie, can you imagine if they got divorced? It's, it's That'd be embarrassing. It's his first marriage, right? It is his okay. only marriage. Thank, thank good. I asked him that. Just, I mean. I mean, like divorce attorneys are all divorced, yeah. Yeah, that's right. They're good at it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> don't marry a divorce attorney. That's insane. Um, so, John, <laughs> free advice. <laughs> So John Gottman, um, I, I asked him what predicts divorce, and he says that he can, he can uh, counsel a married couple briefly and with 94% accuracy predict if they'll be divorced within three years. Go on. Yeah, yeah. all, of you, all you married people you wanna know. Eye rolling, number one predictor. Ah. Signs of, not of anger, of contempt. Schopenhauer said, that in 1860, the contempt is the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. Isn't that great? In other words, which is what an eye roll totally. communicates. Yeah, derisiveness, yeah. sarcasm, dismissal. Have you ever done that? You know, it's funny because, you know, I saw that and I thought, oh man, I just saw myself. I looked at myself on a, you know, I was having a debate or something on CNN or on TV, and, and it was somebody who was making a point that I thought was particularly ill-founded, and I rolled my eyes. I mean, this is the on way television. to make, On TV. I mean, it's like, I'm guilty. And I thought, I don't want to be that guy. Why? Because I don't hate that person. Yeah. I have nothing against that person. That person simply disagrees with me. Yeah. And, and I need to, but, and if I want to persuade, and if I want to persuade people watching, by the way, I got to show love. And you, know, you never have been in an interaction with somebody with whom you disagree, and you show contempt and create an enemy, and then, and then say, you know, that was great what I did. Mm. You know, never. And, and, and when, you, when you fail to do that, and you actually show kindness and respect and love, you never say later, I wish I'd been more of a jerk. Mm. This is just not how we're wired, and yet we react this way. So here's the problem. We have a culture of contempt. Mm. There's a subtitle in this book, is the culture, how, we, how decent people can save America from the culture of contempt, and it starts with each one of us. Here's the good news. You can break the cycle. Mm. Each one of us can break the cycle by, by recognizing that it's a habit. You know, I, I don't wanna be a bad person, 93% of Americans hate how divided we become as a country. But yet we're the ones contributing yeah, to the division. Because we have a habit. Mm. So one of the things I talk a lot about in this book is how habits are formed and how habits can be broken. Because if each one of us is going to have a mission, have an apostolate against this, then we need to break our own habits. Mm. And it goes to, I mean, there's this Buddhist masters. Mm. They talk about stimulus and response and maximizing the space between that. So you're stimulated. Somebody treats you with contempt. Happens all the time. If you're on social media, it'll happen within 24 seconds. Okay, so somebody will treat you with contempt. And if you, you have no space between your stimulus and your response, you'll react with contempt. Buddhist masters talk about maximizing the space between stimulus and response into which you choose your own reaction, which makes you the master. So give a practical example. Your mother, who is a Buddhist master. Mm. Your mother's here, but I mean, all of She's your- She's a Buddhist master. Yeah, and all of your mothers were Buddhist masters. Why? Because she, your mother's told you to count to 10 before, when you're angry before you react. 
That's what you should do. You count to 10. Why? Because your mother is saying, choose your response. So here's how I, I was working on this research, and I, and I understand this because I've been, I'm a meditator, and I understand the stimulus and response cadence, but I said, what do I put in there? So I was doing a, a documentary film. It's actually coming out this spring called The Pursuit, and in it, we were in Dharamsala with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and we were working together for like six or seven years, and we were shooting these scenes, and between takes, I was having a conversation with him. I said, this is on my mind, on my heart. I said, Your Holiness... What should I do when I feel contempt? Mm. And he said, he said, show warm-heartedness. And I said, or I thought, you got anything else? Because mm. <laughs> that sounds weak. Mm. But then I thought about it. A lot of you here, you know the story of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, the leader of the Tibetan Buddhist people. He's super famous. But when he was led into exile after the communist Chinese rolled through Tibet, six million people, vast landmass people who had no military capability, doing what tyrants always do, by the way, which is to roll militarily through a population for resources. Tibet holds the headwaters of all the major Chinese rivers. He, was led, he, was, he led his people into exile at age 24. Hmm. Now, he could have responded with contempt and anger and tried to get, put out a press release or something, but he didn't. He was poor, and he was to be disappeared and forgotten. And he, for the next 60 years, has started every, he told me, he started every day praying for the Chinese leaders. Not that they'll give him back his homeland, but they'll live good and happy lives. And he's become the most respected religious leader in the world. And the cause of Tibet is an international cause, which I promote and I believe in. There is 0% chance that the guy who's the president of the American Enterprise Institute is gonna be an advocate for the Tibetan Buddhist people had the Dalai Lama responded to his situation with contempt. Mm. That's power, man. That is strength. Mm. Answering contempt with contempt is for weak people. Mm. Answering contempt with warm-heartedness mm. is for true masters. You have a wonderful phrase that I, that, uh, in, in this book that I absolutely love, the outrage industrial complex, <laughs> um, which is this business now yeah. of contempt uh, to sell advertising, and contempt breeds contempt. And there are a few people who are profiting from our contempt, both uh, financially, but for their, uh, to benefit their elections as well. Yeah. But is, tell, is, t tell us more about this uh, contempt, uh, uh, this outrage industrial complex. So there's a group, a nonprofit group called More in Common mm -hmm. that does outstanding original surveys, polling of people's attitudes. And they, because they want to bring the country and the world together, which is the ultimate meritorious cause, in my view. Mm -hmm. They find that 93%, I mentioned this a minute ago, 93% of Americans hate how divided we become as a country. And, you know, nothing polls at 93%. Mom's popularity is not even at 93%. It's incredible. It's just like, it's, a, it's a, here's the problem. That means 7% like how polarized we become as a country. That's because they're profiting from it. Mm. And they might not be profiting in money, although they might, you know, lucrative television contracts and f money and fame and power and influence and prestige and clicks and popularity and attention. You know that 7%. But we here, virtually all of you, I hope all of you join me and Simon in the 93%. So we gotta fight back. The outrage industrial complex is using us. They're bullying us. They're terrorizing the country by driving us to be against each other. Look, we have differences politically. So actually, that's great. I mean, that's the, the fruit of democracy. That's the, the promise of this country. That's the reason that the, 
you know, the cynics and the Brookses, one of the reasons, as ambitious riffraff, that they made their way to America. <laughs> so that they could work hard and rise to the top and disagree and not have a knock in the night and a jackbooted thug at the door. We have to protect that. And we have the, the world on our side, or at least the 93% of the country on our side. That's a really great thing. The outrage industrial complex right now is sort of driving the bus. But it's time for us to take the wheel. How do we? We take the wheel by recognizing that it's a big problem for us. Recognizing that we're being torn apart and we cannot reconcile and we can't make progress as long as they're in charge. And the first thing that you do is you deprive oxygen to those who need it, who need the attention, who need the clicks, who need the money, who need the, the views. And so one of the things except, that I, Except they're the car accidents that we're turning to, you know, we're slowing down to watch. Yeah. So we can't simply speed up. No, and one of the, but knowledge is, in my view, knowledge is power mm. on this. We have to make a moral choice about what we want to give our attention to. And most people, again, they're scratching an itch. There's a habit of contempt. Mm. We, if we don't like the habit, we have to be conscious of it and break the habit. So you have to substitute something for it. And you will find that if you expand the, the space, as I talk about in great, in great detail in this book, between stimulus and response, and you put warm-heartedness in it, you will not be interested in the outrage industrial complex so, anymore. So does that mean uh, Fox viewers should turn off Fox and MSNBC viewers should turn off MSNBC? It is whatever is scratching your itch, mm. your favorite columnist, your favorite news network, your favorite whatever. If something is really ideologically biased and it's firing you up, and it's telling you, anybody who's saying, you're right and they're stupid, mm. mute. Do you know what this is analogy, analogous to? Is uh, an, an app, a game on your phone that you're addicted to, Bejeweled mm. or whatever, and you, you, know, you, f you spend money so you can keep playing. And then one day you realize you're not talking to your friends and you're sitting there playing yeah. the game all the time. And you just delete it and you never miss it. It's amazing. Or, or you do miss it for a day or two yeah. because of the habit. It's funny. Um, there are these for-profit or profitable um, companies and people throughout history that make people miserable and they work on dopamine. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter of concentration and focus and, um, it, and it's what gets you addicted to almost everything that's addictive and not just drugs and alcohol, but gambling and- Cell phones. Cell phones and social media and, and what the problem is you hate it, but you keep doing it. <laughs> You know, back in the day, that it was R.J. Reynolds and Philip Morris were the companies that you gave all your money to that were really working on dopamine. And people have largely walked away in this country from those addictive products. Now it's social media. Social media absolutely is working on the dopamine circuits in our brains, and it stimulates m the most dopamine when it tells us what we want to hear and that the people that we don't like are stupid and evil. Mm. It's amazing, you know, when you look at the apps on your favorite newspaper and you read your favorite columnist who's firing you up and telling you that the other side is dumb, you get to the bottom and it's, it's monitoring your viewing habits to give you the next article that you get you a little bit more fired up. This is on purpose. We're being used. It's not right. And it's time for us to take our, take it back. So one of the things I'd love to get your opinion on is, um, I'm fascinated by the difference in the way conservatives are able to support other conservatives even when they viscerally disagree with them and behind the scenes maybe even have contempt for them mm -hmm. and yet publicly they will fall in lockstep mm. and liberals will eat their own. Liberals, <laughs> liberals with somebody who just, you might have had years of agreement and you might, something happened 
and they'll they eat their own and spit them out like nobody's business. Um, talk just I'd love to get your opinion on sort of why that happens. Well, you know, it's it's funny because conservatives say the same thing but in reverse. They think that liberals go in lockstep and that conservatives eat their own and are not loyal to each other. But that's and, not true. Well, it's <laughs> <laughs> objectively what's happening is whatever side you're on, you actually see the civil war going on and on the other side you see solidarity. But, but we see but we know that's not true. I mean, just look at what happens in Congress. Mm. I mean, uh, I mean, Al Franken's a great example. I mean, without any kind of investigation or anything, um, whether you agree or think Al Franken did the thing that he did or not, the, 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 the party reacted and pushed and destroyed his career, pushed him out entirely. Um, um, whereas, uh, uh, if you want to take the Kavanaugh hearings, whether you agree with whether Kavanaugh did it or not, it was just remarkable to see that, the, 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 that conservatives just fell into lockstep. Yeah. The, the example that a lot of people are talking about on the political and those, right. And those are similar accusations. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people are talking on the political right these days about what's going on with charges of anti-Semitism in, in the Democratic Party. And why, why is there not a full-throated denunciation of the anti-Semitism? And again, only Democrats can, as an independent, I can't answer that. Only Democrats can answer whether the political calculation is such that it's not either not meritorious or not warranted. Mm. And so this is a problem, and increasingly it's a problem where tribalism takes precedence over, over principle. Yeah. And you know, it's easy for all of us to do that. It's really, really easy to, to see the sins of the other side in greater focus and with greater gravity than sins on your own side. But that's exactly the opposite of what we, we should be doing. We should be more alarmed when people who agree with us transgress on our own values. That should really make us angrier, and we should hold them to higher account when you think about it. And, and, and yet we don't because power is attractive, and it seems, and everybody's telling us in the 7% outrage industrial complex yeah. that this is the election that matters more than any time in our lifetime. That this is the, the moment in which we have to come together, and we, and we lower our standards. The, what I find so interesting, um, um, and you, and, and you know I preach bipartisanship and yeah. I will actually work with both parties right. um, quite openly. Um, As do I. Because, yeah, we both do. And the point is, is uh, Arthur and I have made the decision, which is we can't preach bipartisanship and then pick a side. Mm -hmm. um, um, and what I find so astonishing is, and you, you saw it in New Hampshire, which is when one, one group of people on one political spectrum, and it's just politics, actually view the other side as evil. They yeah. use the word evil. They yeah. are evil. Right. Um, there was an amazing uh, uh, interview uh, uh, with Christoph Waltz and David Letterman. Um, when Inglorious Bastards was uh, in the movies, uh, uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie Inglorious Bastards. Great movie. And Christoph Waltz plays this, the, the, the Nazi uh, um, in a chilling uh, and effective uh, portrayal. And, and in this interview with, with Christoph Waltz, David Letterman asks him, what did you have to do as an actor to be able to portray evil so effectively. And Christoph Waltz looks at him absolutely confused. You see him trying to mm. understand the question. You see the wheels turning, and, he's, and he, and he kind of doesn't understand the question. He says to Letterman, but huh, he wasn't evil. And then Letterman asks the question again. He says, what did you have to do to play evil incarnate? Like, where did you have to go inside yourself to, to <laughs> muster that up? And again, Christoph Waltz doesn't understand the question and he says something completely unrelated, and eventually they move on. Like, you can see it's gonna go nowhere. And 
what you realize is what, make, what made Christoph Waltz such an effective actor is no one thinks they're on the side of evil. Everyone thinks they're on the side of good. Yeah. And the way he was able to play the character so effectively is he, as an actor, said, this guy absolutely believes in the goodness of what he's doing. Yes. And I think this is the, uh, the, our problem in politics today, which is only we can label the other side evil. Hmm. ISIS thinks they're on the side of good, you know? Um, uh, and, uh, and the idea of empathy, um, which is to, to absolutely believe that the other side, though we may disagree with them, hmm. absolutely believes they're on the side of goodness. And the opportunity is to try and understand what is driving that. Hmm. Um, with an open heart, obviously. Yeah, right. Um, and it's something that, uh, uh, that the 93% of us who think that, the war, that, that our country's divided are not doing because we're the ones calling the other side evil mm -hmm. and that they're the ones that have to stop or being evil. Or we're acquiescing to when somebody calls the other side evil. Or acquiescing. And we're falling in line with our favorite columnist. Yeah. We're not muting them or, or, or better yet repudiating them. Yeah. So there's this great research by a guy named Adam Waits mm -hmm. who teaches at Northwestern University on something called motive attribution asymmetry. You know, like, sort of a complicated, in, anyway, it's a simple idea, but you have to say it in a complicated way to get yeah. tenure. <clears throat> and, um, <laughs> Which is why I've never been given tenure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've, I've, I've had it, it's not, it's not really that great. Um, you quoted Schopenhauer when we started. Yeah. And, and the date. That's why you got tenure. <laughs> <laughs> I was an economist. That gave me nothing. <laughs> so... So motive attribution asymmetry is this incredibly interesting phenomenon in which you have two sides in a conflict where both sides are convinced that they're motivated by love and the other side is motivated by hate. Mm. Now, both sides think I'm motivated by love. Arthur thinks that he's motivated by love and, and Simon's motivated by hatred and Simon thinks that Simon's motivated by love and Arthur's motivated by hatred. Simon and Arthur can't both be right. Simon and Arthur might both be wrong but we can't both be right. Mm. When does this occur? Generally, in, in, in periods of confrontation, military confrontation, you see a ton of it in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Both sides uniformly think that they are motivated by love for humanity and for their country and what's right and good. And the other side thinks, and they think that the other side is motivated by hatred for them. Okay, now why is this an interesting piece of research? It's published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2014. Mm -hmm that today in America, liberals and conservatives have the same level of motive attribution asymmetry as the Israelis and Palestinians. Big problem. Mm. Because that's the ultimate kind of tribalism was basically then people can get you to do almost anything. Mm. If you basically can't, and, and the weirdest thing is that, you know, when I, when I had that, that experience in New Hampshire, um, I said, you know, how can I do a kind of a, a little quasi experiment? Because, you know, I'm on the road a lot. I'm talking to a lot of different audiences, left, right, and center. So I started asking this question, I'm gonna ask you now, and I can't see very well, but I, I'm gonna look out and I'm gonna ask you, just for a quick show of hands, how many of you love somebody with whom you disagree politically? Can I round that to 100%, Simon? Yeah, it's, it's probably 85%. Okay. 90%. It's the Upper East Side. <clears throat> um, it's, it's 93%. It's 93%. Okay. All of you had your hands up, ask yourself, those people that you love who disagree with, who you disagree with you politically, are, they, are those people motivated by hatred to you? Almost none of you would say yes. You would say they're misguided, you'd say that they're wrong, 
You say that they have bad information. You say they've been brainwashed by some cable news network or by a bunch of politicians or the entertainment industry or something, <laughs> the outrage industrial complex. So the problem is that the attribution, mode of attribution asymmetry is based on an error, by a cognitive functioning error. Mm-hmm. That, and we've been convinced of that because it gives people power. Mm. We have to recognize that people who disagree with us usually, in virtually none of the cases except for the crowning heights and the people who are profiting from it, they don't hate us. They might be wrong. And, and, and again, none of this is to say that we need to agree more. Because I believe in the competition of ideas and so do you. I believe in disagreement, vigorous disagreement. If somebody's wrong, you should go after it, hammer and tongs. But their ideas are not the person. And, and separating the person from the ideas means that you can treat bad ideas with disdain and still love a person and not treat the person well, with This is what's happened, isn't it? Exactly which is, right. Which is we've personalized right. people's ideas. Right. We, we don't think their ideas are bad, we think they're bad. Right. They are bad. Why do we do that? Um, I th- um, are you asking me rhetorically? Yes. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm asking you because you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I, think there's a, I think there's a number of reasons. I think one of the big reasons is that um, more and more and more we're disconnected from the people with whom we're disagreeing with. Um, we, you know, it's, we get angry on Twitter. We get angry on Facebook. Um, you and I both know this, which is um, we can say something publicly and people will rip us to shreds um, online, but everybody's really polite when they come into the audience, you know? Mm. Um, because there's a respect when, when, you're, when you're with someone. Plus the, the count to 10 rule, I think is, has been invalidated with the instantaneous nature of, of social media, which is you read something, you're incensed, you react, which is usually a reaction in your mind, but except you type it mm. and then you hit send. I personally believe Twitter should have a, 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 a 20 second delay mm. And then it says, are you really sure you want to send this? Mm-hmm. Um, about a 20-hour delay. Yeah, and, and, uh, and I, would, I, would, I, would, I would put money down that most of the, the stuff that gets posted wouldn't get posted. Yeah. Uh, the Roseanne bars and things like that, things that are done in poor taste or poor humor or... When the ambient wears off. Or, or, or you know. And, and it's, it's, I mean, I think, I think there are people, they, they just didn't have a second to think through even if I intended this to be funny, should I really post this? Yeah, Trevor Noah, you know, even if I am being yeah. angry, yeah. should I really post this? Yeah. And I think the 10 second rule is a big, a big thing. Um, this is so I, smart. But I think the disconnectedness is, is the thing. Mm. Um, it's uh, the dehumanization. It's the dehumanization. The individuation. Because the way you produce peace is you meet your enemy. Right. Um, you shake. You have peace talks. You yeah. Have, you have. You shake hands. You, it has to be done in person. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, William Urey, the guy who wrote Getting to Yes, who, who I'm a huge fan of, he laments the fact that we have peace talks. We don't have peace listens. Mm. Um, and he was actually at the Camp David Accords, um, which is when Yasser Arafat was offered 98% of everything he was asking for, and couldn't make the deal. Um, and Bill was there to help broker the piece that ended up collapsing. And I, and I asked him, um, this is peace negotiations at the highest level in the world. Mm. Arabs and Israelis at Camp David, the world's best peace negotiators at the table. I said, do they start with why they showed up? And he said, no. Mm. They start with what they want. Ah. And one side lays out what they want, and the other side lays out what they want, and the negotiation begins of giving and taking. But neither party says, neither party asked, 
Why did you come here today? Mm. You're a busy person. You got, you're spending a lot of political capital to be here. Um, the risk of failure will, will, will damage your reputation or maybe failing will enhance your reputation. What is the point of all of this nonsense? Mm -hmm. What is the point of all this stress? And it doesn't matter who goes first. The other party will say it's simple. Um, what I'm looking for is that our people want to feel safe, that they go to work every day um, and come home and feel safe and send their kids to school every day and that they feel safe coming home. We all want to be able to provide for ourselves and feel a part of something bigger than ourselves, call it a nation state, call it an ideology. Right. To which the other side can respond, funny, that's what we want. Right. Now let the negotiation And you begin. can't do that very well when you're on Twitter. And you can't do that at all when you're on Twitter. No, you can't, we don't talk with people, we talk at people in, right. in social media. Um, this is why, by the way, Simon is not very much on social media. I mean, you're living out, so the, your biggest best-selling book is Start With Why. Yeah. So the principle here is, and, and by the way, this is operative in all of our lives. You know, when you're in New York or Washington, D.C., where I live, it is the most professionalized, ambitious places in the world. You know, the question is, everybody asks you to party, what do you do? Nobody ever asks, why do you do what you do? Ever. You have an answer? You need an answer. <laughs> Read the book. No, 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 but no, I, 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 uh, I, think, I, think that, um, I think that what we have in America today is a mirror. I think we get the politicians we deserve. And I think we sit in our armchairs and say, look at them. We hate the Republicans uh, are at Democrats' throats. We hate the Democrats or Republicans' throats. Or we endorse our own and contempt the, the other, have contempt for the other. And I don't think enough of us have looked in the mirror and said, shit, that's me. Because yeah. uh, these, these are my friends, too. I hear mm. it as well. I hear my friends who have actual contempt for somebody who would say, uh, I'm, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat, or um, especially in New York City, you know, if somebody says, I voted for Trump, there are people who voted for Trump who keep their mouths shut mm. at dinner parties, not because they're embarrassed, but because they will be berated and humiliated and, and criticized in the most horrible way. So it's just, you just keep it to yourself. Um, and I think what's more interesting is, to, is for us to learn curiosity, which is if somebody voted for Trump, to try and understand what motivated that decision, rather than judging the person, I think is more interesting. And I think I think the uh, you know the why question as opposed to the what. I think we, I think we yeah exactly the why question. And I think we um, we cannot control the things that we cannot control. You can't control the, the the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. Neither can I. We can't control the president or any of uh, the secretaries in the cabinet. Like we have no control. The thing we can control is ourselves and our own environment. It's not big America that's the problem, it's little America that's the problem. Um, and, and I think the, the, the solution, we're looking for silver bullets. We're looking for to elect somebody who's gonna fix everything. Mm. And I, I wish it could be done that quickly and that easily, but it can't and it won't. Um, and I think the, the, our politicians will reflect us. Right, you met, well, I was living here in the 80s um, when Ed Koch finally lost yeah. as mayor. And on the night when he finally lost, <laughs> Finally lost, you know? And, you know, he had run and run and run. So as a politician, sooner or later you're going to lose. Sure. He lost. And he said, the people have made their decision, and now they're going to have to pay. <laughs> <laughs> we get the politicians that we want. I mean, that we believe, that we, it is the mirror. That we deserve. It's really, it's really, that we deserve. It's yeah. really, I mean, that was his point. Um, and that's really clear, for sure. 
But we can fight back. We have mastery. Why, but what? No, should we not love back? Instead well, of we can. Back? Well, fighting back with love is the ultimate. Is the ultimate I lo- power. I love is the, the point that I'm trying to make. Okay, so so let's get to some practical solutions about this, right? Yeah. We were talking about social media. So this is it. It de-individuates people. You have a bigger problem. The biggest problem you're going to have is when you're not an actual person talking to somebody in person. When you get a, you can get an email from Simon, it says if you're um, if you're with somebody. Um, and you're looking at your phone, please put down your phone and pay attention to that person before you read this email. Because the people you were with are more important than anything in this email. That, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's I almost got it right. Because yeah. I've seen it a right. bunch of times. You know, I, I usually read that's, through that message my, before my, I put it down uh, the phone and get back my, to it. Uh, what do you call it? My signature. That's yeah, but it actually comes before the message. Yeah, it comes before the message. Yeah, it comes before the message. So, okay, we need to re-individuate ourselves. Any occasion in which you are not you, and which you're anonymous, should be repudiated. And so one of the, I, I go through these rules, particularly with young people, who want to be happier. Um, there's a lot of new research that shows that every hour you spend on social media, you will be unhappier. Every hour will be an unhappier hour. There's a lot of good experimentation. There's a good study from the University of Michigan. There's a good study from Israel, from yep. net, with natural experiments. People who spend more time on Facebook yeah. are unhappier than people who spend less time. Exactly right. And, and Twitter, which is a contempt machine, mm is the worst, in, in, in according to a lot of these data that, that we're currently starting to see. Okay, so what do you do? Re-individuate yourself, starting with a few rules. Number one, never ever interact with an anonymous entity. I mean, you can't tell, but you really know when somebody's, you know, Trump lover 2020, <laughs> Bernie bro 2020, that's not an actual human, that might be a Russian Twitter bot for all you know, but at very least it's somebody not taking responsibility for what he or she says. Second, never be anonymous. Never say anything anonymously. Commit to a lack of anonymity. We don't live in Burma. This is not a, a dictatorial regime where if you actually say what you think politically, there's going to be a, you know, a knock at midnight. You know, we live in the, the, one of the freest countries in the history of the world. We can afford not to be anonymous. That's number two. Number three, this comes from John Gottman, the marriage counselor. Yeah. When he's got, a, 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 he's got people that are on the rocks, a couple that's on the rocks, he makes them carry notebooks around and, and write down what they're thinking. And, and when they want to say something critical to their partner, he makes them say five loving things before they can get to their criticism. Because they have to remember how to not be critical. When you're first in love, you can't think of anything critical. And then when you're about to get divorced, you can't think of anything but criticism. So what does he make them do? He makes them go back to the early days manually. It's great. So it's like, you know, I, I, mean, I can't believe she picked me up late. I can't believe that I'm just going to, all right. You look beautiful tonight. <clears throat> I love your mother. Forget that. Um, <laughs> and by the time you get through the five, you don't remember the one. That's your rule for social media. That's your rule for your, all your interactions with other people. You can't do anything critical or negative even remotely until you've said five beautiful and affirming things. And I've committed myself to this. I've lashed myself to the mask because, yeah. you know, I have, a, I have a public job. I write books. Yeah. And so when I say something, if it's hypocritical or wrong or I go against it, I'm going to hear about it. Someone will let you know. Somebody will let me know. Yeah. My teenage kids will let me know. Yeah. 
which is not that fun. So I've committed myself to the five to one rule. And you know what happened? It, went, it just wound up being the five to zero rule. Yeah. And that's what we can do. This is a practical way for us to actually become warriors in the fight against contempt and for more love. Yeah. And what you do is you say, okay, I got it five. Five, that's expanding the range between stimulus and response. Yeah. Man, it's changed my life. I think the, I think when we'll switch to questions in, a, in, in now. Uh, yeah, that's right. It's uh, <laughs> making a call on the line. I, I'll, I'll, I'll share a story that, that really helped me, which is I have a friend who lives in a small town in Tennessee near nothing, mm-hmm. you know, an hour and a half from the nearest small city, uh-huh. rural Tennessee. She holds very, very different political views to me. Um, and she says things that are absolutely based on conspiracy theory, you know, some of the outrageous things. That's what they want you to think, Simon. Uh, uh, you know, the, but, uh, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. No, no, no. I am not a conspiracy yeah. theorist either, but she, she believes in a lot of these things. Yeah. Like to the core of her being, uh, she absolutely believes the government is listening to all her phone calls and reading all her emails. And, you know, the government doesn't care what she's doing, you know? Um, and, um, I, I got her an Amazon Alexa for, for Christmas and she returned it because she thought the government would listen to everything. Um, and uh, it's been such, it's been, it's so good for me because if we talk about political things or she says one of her theories, I, I have, I've become incensed and started screaming logic, you know? Um, and it's been so good to me because I know at her core, she's such a good human being mm. who cares about me with all her heart. And it's been so good to me to learn that her opinions are not her. Mm. And I can, I, can, I can love somebody and not love their political yeah. points of view or even their your, views right. of the world. Every one of you has this. It's your, yeah. it's your uncle. It's your nephew. I think, and I think to law. spend time with those people is the most important thing right now. Mm. And it's not a criticism of her. It's a criticism of me right. that I would get angry sometimes. Yeah, no, it's amazing to the extent that, we, that we'll, we'll associate. I mean, look, these, it's very irritating when people continuously say things that we think are wrong, and by the way, that are harmful and that are really hurtful to the country. But that's always the way it's been. There's always been bitter disagreement, and that's actually, as, as much as it's hard to absorb in the current moment, you go back throughout history and you see these big disagreements that were considered to be just existential disagreements yeah. in, in the vast majority of the occasions in the United States. These were the source of strength, that ideological diversity without violence was the source of strength, even when one side was, was vindicated by the facts. Yeah. The fact that we could adjudicate in an aggressive way our, our disputes without violence, that exercise is really important to the polity. It's really important yeah. to American civic life. And so what I recommend to people all the time is to say, particularly when you're talking to somebody that you think is just hopeless and unreasonable, is to actually state to that person, and this is, again, this is, a, this is something that psychologists recommend, but Buddhist masters and, and, and Catholic priests and everybody tend to recommend, is when you're listening to somebody, really listen. Yeah. You know, it's like when, they, listen, when to, they- Listen to understand. Yeah, when they talk about active listening, you know, when you get these classes in active listening, it's actually, usually they're, they're trying to help you fake listening. It's like, here's how to act like you're listening. Yeah, it's waiting for your turn to speak. Right? No, yeah, that's, not, yeah. that's not what we want. To really listen is to say, what is the per- this person's moral objective? Yeah. Not what policy do they want, what party do they want, what's their moral objective? And then to start by stating or asking, is this is what you really deeply want yeah. the following? And if you get that right, 
in virtually every case, that's what you want to. And that is deeply satisfying. That is deeply connecting between people because most people want the same thing and they have, I mean, look, they have different views and they have different facts and sometimes they're woefully misinformed. And by the way, sometimes I am woefully misinformed. And this is one of the things I learned, which is usually when we use the term conspiracy theory, it's a criticism of the way the other person sees the world. Mm. And there are liberal conspiracy theories, there are conservative conspiracy theories. And what I learned was that my conspiracy theories are just different from hers. And some of hers actually have some credence. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's right. It turns out Alexa really is listening. Yeah, it turns out, except it's not the government, it's Amazon. That's right. That, you know, somebody in the, in, the, in the heart of the State Department or, you know, the De- Department of Defense is going, Simon bought more socks. Right. I, I, keep, telling, I keep telling people that, that um, you know, to punish people in the government, they would make them listen to my phone call. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's do some questions. Um, we re- so we, can we bring the house lights up? Is that possible? As we uh, do that, can I mention one thing, Simon? Yeah. One, one thing. You know, I, I have this little thrill being in here. And, and the reason oh, is because, yeah. yeah. Um, 25 years ago. This, 35. 35, 35 years, ago. years ago on January 21st, I made my New York concert debut here as a chamber musician on this stage. On this very stage. Yeah. yeah. At the I 92nd Street Y. And uh, it got a good review in the New York Times. I just went back and found, you know, from 20, June, June, January 21st, uh, 1984. Um, and, and it was great. You were I remember 12 years old. I was, uh, I was 19 years old. I had just uh, dropped out of college, dropped out, kicked out, splitting hairs. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, I, and I went on the road as a classical musician playing the French horn, which was my, my dream. I did it. That was the beginning of a 12-year career as a French horn player. And in New York, it started right here on the stage. What a thrill it is to be back with my friend Simon Sinek from my friends in New York on this very stage, doing something that I love even more, which is talking about ideas with you. My first time on the stage was last year with you. <laughs> How about that? Is that true? Yeah. Well, the last time we were here, was, that was my first That is true. That is indeed um, true. If you have any questions, raise your hand, shout out. Uh, yes, in the back. Oh, yes, in the back. Oh, thank you so much for this, Simon. I'm a huge fan. Thank you. Um, Arthur Brooks, I started my career out in your world at the Council on Foreign Relations. Yeah. In addition to being a thinker, Question. So what I'm saying, though, is that I think with your work that I, I admire what you're doing, but it's looking at our common needs. Mm-hmm. Americans have a need for freedom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one strategy is to have limited government. The other strategy is to have protective government. So we're not having the same conversation because we don't say What would you like Arthur to comment on? So it's just, I'm sorry. It's yeah. just oh, okay. So Thank that's you. it. I appreciate that a lot. And, and, and thank you, by the way, over the course of your work in think tanks and, and in media to try to bring people together. People, 
There was progress, by the way. There is progress. Yeah. Why? Because when society is not made up of groups talking to each other, society is made up of individuals loving each other. That's the strength of a society. And, and what can happen is when each one of us, like, you need to hold your views. And anybody who says we need more agreement in America, I've said it three times, that's, I think that's wrong. Yeah. But we can love each other in spite of that. And if we can create a movement that we were starting at the 92nd Street Y in March of 2019, if we can start to make love cool yeah. across disagreement, that's really super dangerous for the outraged industrial complex. And, and it's really good for the Compromise is not a dirty word. Well, it, flexibility is what we do. I mean, it's like anybody who has gotten married and stayed married understands that, yeah. that it's a, it's, a, it's a competition of ideas. Yeah. The thing that you said that I think is, is, is very interesting, uh, particularly interesting to me, is uh, you talk about at, the, at these highest levels, these Republicans and Democrats are coming together at CFR, and, and yet it didn't matter because at some district, you know, when it got out to the, to, the, to the elected member, it sort of all fell apart. And I think that's exactly what Arthur was saying, which is somebody is profiting from the contempt. And in this case, it's, it didn't matter the level of disagreement. Once it got out to, uh, to somebody who was running for office, the contempt was to their benefit to throw meat into the, into the audience because it, it, it profited my election rather than it was the right thing to do. I, I agree with you entirely, and, and I think that's one of the challenges. Um, yes, in the middle. Thank you, both. Thank you. Um, my question is, um, so I'm one of the people who, there's people I love on the other side. Yeah. Mostly I've just avoided talking to them lately. You know? mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But uh, how do I not have contempt for the outrage industrial complex? Yeah. So like, uh -huh. mm. <laughs> mm. I mean, you know, this uh, big article last week, Jay Mayer, the Fox News White House, Sean Hannity, you know, he, I mean, it's all about money. Sure. And, 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 and the guy who's president supposedly ran to build this brand, not do anything but that. Again, maybe that's not true, but it certainly seems plausible. Yeah. So how do I not have contemporary? Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that a lot. And you know, this is a real weakness for me. This is a real problem that I have because I'm don't have contempt, have more love. And, and I've recognized, I've, I've, I've pointed out tonight, and I've pointed out in this book, and I've tried to point out with the witness that I'm trying to make for the rest of my life, I hope, that we have to fight against this tendency to profit from setting person against person. But that shouldn't result in me actually having contempt for those people either. Yeah. Because you love everybody or you don't. That's binary. By the way, you stop talking to certain people they disagree with you. One in six Americans has stopped talking to a family member or a close friend because of the 2016 election. That is a happiness crisis. Yeah. That is a love crisis that yeah. can't stand because it's bad for one in six Americans, higher than one in six, almost one in five, have stopped talking to a family member or a close friend. That is a, that's crazy. Yeah. That we're not as happy as we should be. We don't have as much love in our lives. Love is the nuclear fuel of happiness. Yeah. It's, it's nuts that we actually will treat each other with contempt to get into this situation. So you know what? I'm working on this. I am working on not having contempt for the outrage but, industrial complex. But, but I think part of it, part of it is also um, begrudgingly given credit where credit is due. Um, I think one of the things that hurt uh, conservatives during the time of Obama was everything he did was wrong. Everything he did was wrong. Well, one of the things that's hurting liberals in the time of Trump is everything he does is wrong. Everything he does is wrong. 
And if you can give credit where credit is due, where some of the things are actually correct, the manner in which she goes about it might be wrong, but the, the underlying thinking is actually correct, or some of the things are actually good. There's a couple pieces of, of things that have actually passed that have actually been. If we can give credit where credit is due, it actually makes our disagreement uh, stronger. It's you know, choke on it a little bit at first. It takes practice. <laughs> it really does. But, it, but, 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 but it's true. But it's true. Um, we're supposed to be the ones building bridges. Let's go over here. Yeah, go ahead, ma'am. I really like what you're saying. I think it's more of a bottom-up than top-down mm. kind of thing. Yeah. And I can see applying it in my daily life, yeah. in my work. But what happens when people don't play at the top? Yeah. So, <laughs> so you can't guarantee that they're going to play. That's a great question. Thank you very much. It's a beautiful question. You can't guarantee it. You can't guarantee, by the way, that even the person you're talking to at the bottom is going to play with you. But you know what? I can guarantee you that you're going to change one heart. That's yours. You know, I had this crazy experience you're when such I such a Buddhist. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. I'm actually a Catholic, but in every time I spend time with the Dalai Lama, I become a better Catholic. <clears throat> so I was I, the first time. Uh, the Dalai Lama, he gave me this advice. How many people can say, so the Dalai Lama gave me this advice? Yeah, I know. He, it's, uh, it's he a, told me, Schopenhauer said in I know, 1860. It's, 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 I, I, yeah, I didn't know Schopenhauer, it turns out, in 1860. Um, you met him so in 1910. I asked, when he said, when he said, answer contempt with warm-heartedness. Now, my next question, you know what my next question was? How? I'm not strong enough. And he said, remember a time when you did that by accident, and remember how it set your heart on fire, and recreate that feeling. It's a very robust psychological technique of, of remembering a feeling and having it elicit the action, because action follows attitude, and attitude follows action, and yeah, you got that. So, so I remembered a time years ago when I accidentally did it. I was still teaching at Syracuse, and I was just this, I was beavering away in professorial obscurity with total happiness. Because, you know, it's the best life. Being an academic is the best. And I had, had really good graduate students, and I wrote lots of books that nobody ever read because they were very boring. And, 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 it, and, and I wrote this book about charity, about charitable giving, and who gives, you know, conservatives or liberals, religious people or secular people, poor people or rich people, and all the things that people think turns out are wrong. And, and it hit the news cycle. It was a very boring book, but it hit the news cycle in just the right way, and it started selling hundreds of copies a day. It's the weirdest feeling because your, your life changes overnight. And you know, lots of press and I was on TV and I was not ready for that. But the weirdest part was I started getting email from people I'd never met by the hundreds. My email was very easy to get on the university website. And you know, I loved your book, I read every word, or I hated it and here's why. And I got this email from a guy, and this is what I remembered when the Dalai Lama elicited this. Three weeks after the book came out, I got an email from a guy in Texas that said, Dear Professor Brooks, you are a fraud, which is bad way to start email. <laughs> But I kept reading, and I noticed that this email was going to be 5,000 words long. It was going to take me 20 minutes to read it. But as I was reading, I noticed that this guy was refuting every fact in my book, saying the data are wrong here, your calculations are wrong here, your interpretation is wrong here, like that the, the columns in table 3.1 are reversed, you moron, stuff like that. It was amazing. He, he read every word. And that's what I, and, and so yeah. I, you know what I was saying to myself? That's and I became wonderful. conscious of my emotions. That's wonderful. And I said, he read my book. Yeah. <laughs> So, and I was filled with gratitude, so yeah. I decided, I decided to tell him. And just for sheer serendipity, I write, dear so-and-so, I know you hated my book and you think I'm a stooge, but you read every word. It took me two years to write that book and I put my whole heart into it. I'm so grateful to you. Thank you. 
send. And then I went back to work. And 15 minutes later, his response pops back up, ding. And I'm like, oh boy, he's going to, I was very apprehensive. He's going to be really mad now, I thought. And I open it up and he says, dear Professor Brooks, next time you're in Dallas, if you want to get some dinner, give me a call. <laughs> do, you, do you know what you touch on? And this is what extending love is. By the way, I didn't get dinner with him because right now I'd be probably chained to a pipe in his basement. <laughs> <clears throat> or maybe he would just buy you dinner. Um, I'm not willing to take that risk, the, the, but you get my point. But yeah. the, the, thing that, the thing that I think you, what that highlights, and the reason to extend love, is everyone wants to feel heard, which is different than listening to people, right? Um, people want to feel heard. Um, we don't want to have our words parroted back to us. And I think this is, this is what makes people um, angry. There's a, gr uh, uh, a documentary on Netflix right now, I wish I could remember the name of it, of a of this wonderful, she's a, 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 an English Muslim woman who was attacked by white supremacists on Twitter, viciously. And so she makes the decision, instead of reacting with anger and contempt, to try and understand where they're coming from. And you can go watch it, it's amazing. And she goes and spends, times, spends time with white supremacists in the United States. And she was actually in Charlottesville, she wasn't marching with them, but she was walking with them when the violence ex uh, exploded um, in Charlottesville. And what she does is she doesn't, she doesn't tell them that they're stupid. She doesn't tell them that they're ignorant. She doesn't tell them that they're racist. She tells them how she feels, how, how their words necessarily make her feel. And she listens to them and she makes them feel heard and she asks them good questions. And you watch, you watch. And what you start to see is these diehard white supremacists now confused because she's supposed to be evil and anti-American and anti-everything, and for the first time in their lives, they actually feel heard. And some of them drop out of the organization because they can't reconcile what their beliefs are with how they feel towards what they consider their friend, who they consider their friend. And it basically is everything that Arthur is talking about and what he's written about, you can see it happen live, which is when we extend love and truly try to understand what is underneath someone, not to see them as contemptible, but to try and understand with love, it, it forces us, it forces those people to, to question themselves because when we yell and scream at them, they hunker down. If somebody calls you an idiot and says all your pol political views are the stupidest thing I've ever heard, you're not gonna question your own beliefs, you're gonna hunker down. Um, this is what, when I say we're, we're partially to blame. So I think to do it in, your, in little America, I think mm. is the, is the if is you And again, you, you we, may not change that person's heart. She might not have changed somebody's right, heart. Correct. But you can change your heart. Correct. And you'll be happier and you'll be more persuasive and you'll be more successful and you deserve that. Yeah. Let's go to the back. Hey, um, I was just wondering, are you not concerned that setting up a dichotomy between the organizational complex and the other 97% sort of uh, doesn't really move the ball forward because what ends up happening is that everybody just sort of tags their opponents with, oh, you're part of that 70%. Just sort of reiterates the underlying. Yeah, no, this gets back to the question that we had before. You know, if, if you're treating somebody with contempt, you're, you're part of the problem. On the other hand, if you're muting somebody who you don't know, but who's trying to fire you up and getting rich as a result of it. One of the things I talk about in the book. We're being manipulated. Yeah, the, po the point is, in there, there are people you know and people you don't who are manipulating you. That's just a fact in America today. There are two different ways to deal with this. For those you don't know, it's simply the mute button or not reading the column. For the people you do know, it's standing up for the people with whom you disagree or showing love to the person with whom you disagree. That's really what it is. And in other words, 
if you're treated with contempt, that's the moment. Because somebody who's in that 7% who treats you with that contempt, who's trying to pull us apart, whether it's the habit, because and they don't want to, they're like us, or whether they really do profit from it, there's never any reason for you to answer with that contempt. Zero percent reason for you to do it. So the only time I'm talking about standing up to those who are bullying you and terrorizing you is when you have a one-sided relationship. They're outbound and you're inbound. Just stop making it inbound. Thank you for that. That clarification is really important. What do you think, Simon? Anywhere you want. Okay, you know, it's like, I want, I want, uh, I want a woman. I mean, that's not what I, it's not a bad. That's not what I mean. I mean, uh, yes, here in the back. I'll, I'll field the questions from now on. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> that's right. And this is a, by the way, this is a live taping of the Arthur Brooks Show, my podcast on Vox. That's not going in. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. This is to, to polarize two right. and, and look at actually what we're saying about yeah. yeah, to begin with, thank you for your work, by the way. Thank you for making the world better. Thank you for coming to the United States and uh, please move here. Um <laughs> So it's really hard when you're talking about existential issues like this to do what I'm about to say. So I'm going to give you an aspirational goal. See, when you're talking about political taxes, for example, and typical right-left stuff that doesn't seem existential like this, this is easier, the advice that I'm giving you. But I'm going to give you hard advice now. I'm going to offer this to you um, in a spirit of love. The person you're talking to who doesn't share your values is not the same as those values. They hold those values. It's okay if you feel contempt for their values and you don't have to go out on a date or marry that person. But it's not okay to treat that person or even think about that person with contempt because the, it's a person, it's a human, it's another soul. 
and no other soul is worthy of contempt, even if their ideas are. Here's the, the here, I asked you to, to, to expand the space between stimulus and response. I want you to expand the space between ideas and people, right? You can hate somebody's views if you want. You can think they're noxious. You can fight against them. That's the American way, and maybe that's the Irish way too. But you can't hate another person. And what we're trying, what we're being fed constantly is a diet that somebody's ideas are the person, that they're, that they're smashed together. This is, what, this, is what, this is what Simon was talking about, where we mix up why and what, right? This is our moral goal, is to remember that every human and every soul is just as valid as each one of us, notwithstanding the fact that we can't stand what we think. There's a new book that comes out and says, I love you, but I hate your politics, mm about couples that actually do get married but can't stand each other's politics. Mm. But you can do that with somebody with whom you wouldn't even go out on a date in the first place. That is my aspirational goal for my life, and I offer it with love to you. We, we hear it in, in, in the media. You hear it with politicians. You hear it with uh, the pundits, where they say, you know, he's a liar versus he lied. There's a big difference. Mm. One is a criticism of the action and the words spoken. The other one is a criticism of the human being. And we should all watch ourselves accusing another person of being a liar versus saying he told a lie. Because um, we don't know. Because most of us who have teenage I, kids, we've learned you never say, you know, you're a terrible student. You say you got an F on your quiz. You don't say you're a terrible student, <laughs> precisely because we're trying to do that. Right. Uh, we'll come down front and then we'll go in the back over there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, do you believe psychedelics uh, can play a role in developing our ability to love our enemies and help to heal the divides between people by realizing our own ultimate unity through the psychedelic experience? Mm. I mean, I, I, I have an opinion. I would love to hear it. <laughs> Far out, man. I have an opinion too, and it's an interesting question, by the way. I'm not making light of it. Yeah. Sure, but, they doesn't, but it doesn't last. You know? So I would like a solution that is more infinite than the time that you're uh, tripping. The feeling after. The, yeah, but the point is it ends. The point is, is you do something to stimulate an experience, even if that experience is love, and it may linger, and it may linger for a while, and then it'll stop, and then you'll uh, do it again. And it's th this is the cycle that is uh, the cycle of addiction. And though the impact and effect may be very affirmative, is it you, or is it the impact of the psychedelic? So sure, it's not a, a judgment of the psychedelic whatsoever. Do it, have fun, love all the people around you. But I would say concurrently, learn the skills of love that don't require the psychedelic. Um, because I need you in, to be able to call upon it when you have no access to the psychedelic. Hmm. There's a lot of emerging research that you're calling upon. I can tell you're thinking about it, you're reading about it. And you're really, because, it, because the, the, the emerging body of research suggests that there are particular properties that, that are used for, for people who've experimented with ayahuasca in Peru, for example, or, or mescaline under the watch of a, a physician or a shaman. 
and, and it suggests that there's a way that you can, you can trip some wires that can change them. And we don't know. It's very early days of this research, very early days. There's po possibly therapeutic uses of hallucinogens for anxiety and depression. We don't know. There's a guy named Joe Green who does work on this. He's in California, and he's doing early-stage research on this. And so we don't know where it's going to go. I don't take drugs because I'm afraid. I'm afraid. And I'm afraid of what it will do to my mental health because it's too early in the research. I also know, however, that based on this research, that meditation can get you to the same place. It, can get, it takes longer, safer. And so one of the things that I recommend to all of you is that you experiment with, with discernment. What is discernment? It's, it's, it's sitting peacefully and looking for your own desire. You know, discernment is not what should I do. Discernment is what do I want? Most people, see this is Simon's question. What's your why? You know, most people are going through life with, what's my what? What's my what? What do I do for a living? What am I gonna do today? What am I gonna have for breakfast? You know, how am I gonna get to work, right? They don't ask what's my why, which is a fundamental question of desire, and desire is about discernment, and discernment requires peace, and peace requires calming your monkey mind. And maybe you can do that with LSD. Maybe you can do that with mescaline, peyote, and ayahuasca, and fill in the blanks. But I know you can do that with meditation. I know that you can do that by bringing yourself peace. Uh, we'll go this way, and then we'll come back to you. Yes. Thank you both so much for being here. I'm a big fan of both of your work. Um, it seems to me that part of the reason we need to love our enemies and create this space between people and their ideas is that people can change their mind. And in some cases, maybe someone hasn't been exposed to the justifications for the viewpoint that you think is right. But at the same time, I feel like our culture right now isn't one that encourages intellectual openness and being willing to be persuaded. And my question is, how do we change that culture and encourage people to have the intellectual humility to be open to changing their mind? I mean, your brother. I go back to the answer that we gave some moments ago, which is it starts with little America. You know, we cannot control the things we cannot control. And we keep talking about the things as if we can control them or that they need to change. And then we just go about our day. And, you know, there's, a, there's something called the law of diffusion of innovations, which basically all populations, regardless of their standard, regardless of their size, sift across the standard deviation, the bell curve, right? If you have high performers, you have low performers, you know, uh, for example. Um, uh, and what the law of diffusion tells us, a guy by the name of Emmett Rogers who wrote about, who theorized about this in the 1960s and it holds, holds true, that if you want to affect the bell, if you want to affect the majority, if you want to see an idea spread or see systemic change, you don't actually aim at the bell, you aim at the early adopters. The early adopters are more comfortable with risk, they're, um, they're willing to sacrifice time, energy, or money to be a part of something that advances something. Um, the, 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 the majority is more cynical, what's in it for me? You know, what price, quality, service features. And what, what he taught us is that um, the, the majority doesn't try something because they want to see, they want somebody else to try it first. And so you need 15 to 18% market penetration, which is called the tipping point. It's a sociological phenomenon that when you reach this level, it just goes. Ideas or anything else, right? And so the problem is, is when we talk about how do we change the system, what we're talking about is the bell. We're talking about the majority. And we're talking about convincing people who have a very low risk tolerance to change the way they see the world. The reality is, there's about 10% of us that are practicing this really hard. Um, and what Jeffrey Moore wrote many years ago, Crossing the Chasm, we have to go from that 10% to that 18, 15 to 
In other words, we have to practice those values. And if you get enough of us to practice those values, those values become American values, right? And the problem is we're not practicing those values. The value in this case of being willing to change your mind when in the preponderance of evidence. Willing to change your mind against the preponderance of evidence, the willingness to listen to a, 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 an opinion that you have a visceral and negative reaction to, mm. the, the, the willingness to be empathetic, the willingness to be that wonderful young Muslim woman to go and spend time out of curiosity and empathy with those white supremacists before we label them evil. And what you're saying here is that to do that when you're early adopter is subversive. It's subversion of, of the conventions, of the culture, right? That's what, that's what Simon's telling you. There's a, he has a whole chapter on this about this tipping point of the 18%. And, and, and here's the, also in what And by the way, about. we got the way we are here because it went the tipping, the tipping point happened in the wrong direction. Exactly right, exactly right. So here's the exciting part, if you're an entrepreneur. See, real entrepreneurs are not- By the know, way, this is what it's like in real life. Yeah, yeah. When we- So, so, so real, real entrepreneurs, it's when we're on the phone. So real entrepreneurs <laughs> don't, I mean, starting companies, that's fine. You know, getting venture capital, that's fine. Real entrepreneurs do things like fall in love. Real entrepreneurs do things like change their mind. Why? Because those are subversive, countercultural acts that require putting capital at risk. When you change your mind in American society today, it shows you're weak and you're wishy-washy and you don't believe anything really, really strongly, right? That is putting your capital at risk. But you know what? It's super satisfying because and when you practice a little bit, you start doing it a lot. You're like, I heard a question today that kind of blew my mind a little bit because you helped me. It's like, I'm doing this wrong, man. I'm on stage at the 92nd Street Y, and I repudiated the way I was talking a tiny little bit because you were right, and I wasn't right in the way I was thinking about it. The, 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 you don't know this. You can do this. You can do this tomorrow. Sorry, Simon. Go ahead. You, you can. I just you, had a thought. I know, I know, I know, but I want you to put a Finish point because I want to hear it. So. <laughs> it's exactly like this. <laughs> tomorrow, somebody is going to say something, and you're going to go, good point. They're going to go, Huh, I had a good point. Because nobody ever hears that. And you'll be that little subversive element, and it's going to be, you're just going to love it. It's going to set your heart on fire. And then somebody else is going to do it. What are you going to say? So in this, new, in this new research that I've been doing about finance. Can I have some of your water? Yeah. Thanks. Did you finish yours? Mm. You have some left. Oh, sorry. You can have mine. Uh, the, the... We both have a cold now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> The, uh, the research that I've been doing about finite and infinite thinking. Uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I don't have a cold. I do. <laughs> um, uh, the, the research I've been doing is, is finite thinkers, which, are, which play to win all the time. They, they, they play the game con only conceiving of winning and make all decisions with the goal of winning. Uh, like to control all the variables because surprises are scary because surprises can subvert winning, right? So we don't like surprises, we want to control the variables. The infinite thinker, um, the infinite-minded thinker, um, loves surprises and um, sees opportunity in surprise and sees opportunity to grow and to learn. And what we're proposing, what you're proposing is is to be open to surprise yeah. as opposed to wanting to control. And we want to control the other side. We want to control the other group who disagree with us so that they will see the way we see it so that we can build the world that we want and live in the country and get the, 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 the politicians that we prefer 
and rather than being open to surprise and, and growth. And it's extremely non-entrepreneurial way to live. You know, the weirdest thing is these data that I see coming up all over the place in surveys that show that people in their 20s are much less entrepreneurial than we gave them credit for and much less entrepreneurial than past generations. And the reason is because they're afraid. Yeah. It's because of fear. Yeah. And so fear is up. And part of the reason is because people my age have raised their kids to, be, to take less risk and to have more safety. It's funny, my, I have this buddy. Oh, and over-intervene. Totally. And so my buddy, Jonathan Haidt, teaches at New York University. He's a social psychologist at the Stern School of Business. And he does this thing where he gets out in front of audiences and he says, okay, everybody over 40, think in your head, and then when I count to three, call out how old you were the first time that you went out of the house by yourself on an errand, either walking to school or going to the store for your mom or something like that. Okay? One, two, three, six, seven. Okay? Everybody under 30. How old were you? Under 25, even better. One, two, three. 12, 13. That is, my friends, that is a big difference. America's getting safer. Yeah. You know, when I was walking around, I grew up in Seattle, and as I mentioned before, and you know, in my neighborhood, literally Ted Bundy was running amok in my neighborhood, right? <laughs> and I had a paper route at 4.30 in the morning. And Which is you know, what he loved to strike. I know, I know, exactly. And so, and so we were talking about it around the dinner table, my dad, who had a PhD in statistics, and he said, you know, the odds are very low that you're in his core demographic. <laughs> so you can keep the route, right? <laughs> I was in fifth grade, my friends. I mean, it was just... Well, you, you know the famous story about Richard Branson, right? So Richard Branson, one of the world's most successful entrepreneurs, his mother, um, when he was, I think, eight years old, they were, th I think, three miles from home. They were driving home, and she put him out of the car and said, make your way home. And like five hours later, he finally came home and she says, I knew he, you'd take this long because you stopped to smell you stopped to smell everything and look at everything. But it was hours that it took this little kid to make his way home, but the kid learned not to be afraid. Mm. That's you. I'm not proposing you let your eight-year-old. <laughs> you get to do this. I'm simply <laughs> saying we overcome. Stop supervising extreme, yourself. It's an extreme example. It is an extreme example, we, kind of. We are technically done. Um, which means if you have babysitters and you need to go, by all means. Uh, but I don't know if there's, if, if we're allowed to keep going. I don't know. But I'd say let's keep going if you want. Nobody is like. Can, can we keep going? Oh, 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 right. We also have a book signing. Yeah. So we either sacrifice the book signing. Oh, come you, on, man. Or you just, or we just do the book signing late. Okay. All let's right. do 10 more minutes, and then we'll do, and we'll okay, go to we'll there's go to so books. many more, 10 more minutes, because there's yeah. a lot of hands up, and this is the best. Yeah, let's go to the back over there. We haven't had one from the back over there. Yes. Hi, I kind of like missed the whole talk, because I got the time wrong, but... <laughs> it's the daylight it's savings. Daylight I, savings. I, I hear you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's Spe right. Speaking of legislation and policies we disagree with. Well, no, 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 but by the way, so Why you don't feel, feel bad. That? Remember when we were supposed to talk this morning on the phone? Yeah. And we missed it? How come? Because I called you at 10 instead of 9. <laughs> daylight savings. It's funny though. I consider myself a Right. 
can we not even like have a discussion around like right. what we disagree with? Yeah. So I feel like the question is how do we try to combat that? Because, yeah. Like how do we minimize fear in people that we're talking to? Because fear so, is the thing that I feel like you can't like it's like feelings, like you can't tell someone, sure. oh you're not feeling that. Like if right. you truly feel fearful before. Truly. For sure. And you feel fear, too, because you're being ganged up on. Yeah, exactly. Totally. So, like, how do we, like, minimize that? Yeah. people in, in a way that, like, minimize their fear? It's a beautiful question. Um, fear is the ultimate negative emotion. Fear is the opposite of love. People think that hatred is the opposite of love. Not. Fear is the opposite of love. Hatred comes from fear. So if you want to wipe out fear, you show love even if you don't feel it and you'll start to feel love, and you'll stop feeling fear. That's the secret to it. By the way, there's a ton of social psychological and neurological research that backs this up. And every major religion, Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, they all talk about fear as the ultimate negative emotion. Okay, so, so how do you do it? You see these interactions as profound opportunities for you to show love, because your heart is overflowing with love. And you want to go find these people who disagree with you because when people treat you with contempt and they're trying to elicit fear and you answer with warm-heartedness and love, you've changed your own heart, you've made yourself more effective, you've made yourself happier, and you might just change their hearts too. So, so here's the, the thing I want you to think about. And this is, this, it's, there's a metaphor that I use in the book because it had a big impact on me. There's this, I was in this retreat center and it was a, it was a Christian retreat center. And my wife and I, we were doing, you know, training couples that were engaged to get married. We were talking about, you know, what it's like to be married for 25 or 30 years, these young couples. But, but that's not the point. What I noticed is I was going out. There's a sign over the door. <clears throat> not when you come in, when you're going out. For the people who are in the re Christian retreat center before they go out to the parking lot, you know what it said? You are now entering mission territory. And I thought to myself, that's not just a religious message. Yeah. See, here's the deal. Every single one of you has fear in your hearts. But you want to dominate that fear with love if you want a better life and you want to be more persuasive. So what I want you to do, what's your name? What I want you to do is I want you to, I want you to imagine a sign over the door of this auditorium before you go out that says, you are now entering mission territory. And if you do that and you keep that in your heart, fear's got no chance. There's a technique for effective confrontation. I learned a long time ago that an answer and a half, a three quarters of an answer is better than an answer and a half. I'm about to dis disobey that advice. Um, there's, a, there's a technique for effective confrontation that is really fantastic that perhaps you can use with them, right? Um, you, it requires three things. It does not matter the order, but you need to have all three. We've gamed it out with one and two and it doesn't work. You have to, be able to, when you talk to the person, you're gonna to have to say exactly how you feel. You have to do better than happy, sad, angry, right? Uh, the specific action that they took that made you feel that way and the potential impact. You have to do all three, the order doesn't matter. So for example, you would say, when you got up and walked, and it has to be specific. You can't say you always do this, right? You always show up late to meetings. You can, it has to be specific. Specifically how you feel, the specific action they took to make you feel that way and the potential impact. So you would say something to the effect of, when you got up and walked out of the room the, on Thursday night, you made me feel completely humiliated. And I fear that if I made to feel like that again, 
I won't, I won't trust you. I, I fear that the love and I, that I have for you will be shaken. And then you shut up. And then it doesn't matter if they get defensive. Well, you said this, and I was just being emotional, and it's, it's, I'm, you know, sure, I'm sorry, but da, da, da. You, you, you say, I hear you, and then you repeat the whole statement again. And what it does, it's designed to make people take accountability for their actions, and it's unbelievably effective. Um, by the way, it also works really, really well for compliments. You do all three. When you stayed and listened to me, you made me feel so heard and so loved. I know that if I'm made to feel like that again, it'll make trust build for me like you have no idea. It works beautifully the other way around. But try that. The order doesn't matter, but have all three things. Let's come over here. Yes. Hi. Um, so thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you both very much. Simon and Morgan, and I, I greatly respect you and Arthur. I'm looking forward to learning more about your work. Thank you. Um, thank you. Following in, in some of these questions that have come up around uh, what can we as little America do to, to change our culture, to more understanding one, beyond practicing active listening and, and being more understanding on an individual level, and you made a great point in pinpointing that gap between the 10% that are practicing this to that kind of tipping point yeah. of the 15, mm. 18%. Yeah. Are there some leverage points that you can think of or social action plans for the societal level yeah. of small America beyond the individual that we could do to start actually taking responsibility for yeah. the direction of our culture? Mm -hmm. So the tricky thing in America that we do, and we're so entrepreneurial, right? Which is we like to back plan everything. Right? We like to come up when, with the result we want, and then what's the back plan that I need to do? And that works a little bit. But this is more, what I'm asking and recommending is more like a lifestyle, right? It's like somebody who says, I wanna get into shape. So you know what that looks like. You might have a weight goal or some sort of fitness goal, and you'll start eating differently, and you'll, you'll go to the gym. You won't see anything, but you'll try again and again. And you know that it's a process. You know that, you know that it's slow and it's not visible. Right? But you can, there are certain metrics that you can measure the progress. You can look in the mirror, which is sort of subjective. You can look at a scale, right? Um, and the problem is, is when you hit your goal, you don't get to stop working out. You have to do it for the rest of your life. So what we're talking about, though there are goals that we could set, what we're asking is people to adopt an entirely different lifestyle. A lifestyle in which when you start to feel yourself seething, and you want to react verbally or in Twitter or any other way, you, you take that space and find the calm. That when you want to label someone as evil or stupid or ignorant or a liar, we have learned the lifestyle of remembering that it's an opinion or a point of view, and it's not who they are. It's just something they said. And maybe they even said it to get a rise out of it. Maybe they said it because they don't actually understand what they said, they heard it, right? We don't know. And so what, what we're advocating is a, is a change of lifestyle that unfortunately, like exercise, some people will be quicker and some people will be slower. And like the succession of smoking and like the fact that we're, we're trying to eat healthy, in time it will become something American. There was a group of people who said the smoking thing is bad for us. I'm not sure exactly when or how, but we, start, we kind of, the, the smoking numbers declined precipitously in this country. And that when they started passing legislation that you can't smoke in, pub, in bars, which are private entities, nobody was really up in arms. We were kind of like, oh, okay, right? And now we're doing it with straws and plastic bags, and we're kind of okay with it, right? In other words, it's become normalized. But it wasn't normalized, and it wasn't normal. And, we, and people aren't making economic arguments why we need to keep plastic bags. 
Yeah, and let me put a put a quick point on that too. Violating the one and a half answer rule. I know. Um, Neither of no, 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 because 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 I've been struggling with this a lot. What you're talking about, you know, uh, um, I care about this a lot. I want to do what I can. I mean. I have views, and I believe in certain public policy ideas, and I like debate and the whole thing. But what I really care about is lifting people up and bringing them together. And I've been thinking, what can I do at scale? What can I do that's a moonshot? Because that's what you're asking. What can we do that's a societal thing as opposed to a dyadic one-on-one deal? And I've been f- struggling with this and struggling with this. And, and you know what I decided to do? I don't have to solve this. I just have to commit myself to doing this for the rest of my life because it makes my life better. And then I'm going to see what the entrepreneurial adventure actually is. So I quit my job. And I'm dedicating myself to this cause. And I don't know where it's going to take me. I don't know what this book is going to do. I don't know what my podcast is going to do. I don't know what my column is going to do. I don't know. But I'm dedicating my work to this. And I'm going to see where it's supposed to go. Because you know what? That's actually how all entrepreneurial endeavors work. I mean, we always talk about the business plan that says, and then we're going to get to IPO in three years or something like that. That's almost never how they work. You know, in only one-third of entrepreneurial endeavors, is there any recognizable business plan? So don't have a business plan. Have a lifestyle of love that's truly entrepreneurial and daring and risky and you're going to start creating a movement, and people are going to be attracted to you, and it's going to be magnetic, and, and we're going to do it together. And pray for me. We're going to, we're going to go uh, one, two, three, and then we'll figure out some of the others. Go ahead. Yep, in the back. There's a lot of talk about evil and wrongness being kind of a, a perception. Hmm. But is there ever a moral obligation to not give a platform or oxygen to well, that's a good one. I'm an academic, so this is really hitting home, man. And, and where am I going after I leave the think tank that I'm running right now? I'm going to go teach at Harvard. So I'm thinking about this a lot. And I think that there are occasions in which it's appropriate to say that these ideas are beyond the pale, but we're way on the wrong side of that, and we should be a lot more accepting of different ideas than we are today. You know, when I'm on campuses today and we're trying to deplatform people, it's wrong. It's a huge mistake because people can't be exposed to the competition of ideas. I think that a lot of ideas are wrong, but I want to hear them. And I think students are going to think that a lot of ideas are wrong, but they should hear them because they're, just, they're going to be weak. They're going to be flaccid minds if they actually don't get that competition of ideas. So no doubt there is a point at which the answer is yes, but I think that we're really far away from it and we're making a mistake right now in America drastically in the other direction. What I'd like all of you to do is join me in being more, more in, the, in, the, in the business of free speech and more accepting of hearing things that we don't like because otherwise we become fearful and we become resistant to the kind of risk that it requires to hear things we don't like. Do you agree with that? I do. Uh, I think there's a difference between allowing speech and lifting speech up. Uh, We cannot suppress speech we find abhorrent. Um, That speech is not allowed to incite violence. That's against the law. There are standards, and those standards have been provided. We don't have to figure out what those standards are. 
but we, we have to allow speech, no matter how con contemptible we find it to exist, but we don't have to put it on national television. Like, we have to allow for it, but we don't have to lift it up, and we don't have to give it equal billing. Um, but we do have to allow for it. So I, I, I don't think it's a, a chicken or egg question. I don't think it, one has to come with the other. Um, and if you want to be a free speech warrior, by the way, the most important way to do it is to fight for free speech with people on your own side, is to elicit a greater acceptance of free speech with people who agree with you who are trying to shut it down. That means conservatives need to start eliciting more free speech that, in speech that's not conservative, and liberals vice versa. And we all know the institutions where these are the greatest problems on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where do we go next? We should, we should do one more, and then we, and then we should, and then we should, um, you guys and we should go out in the lobby and meet you in person. Yeah. Well, whoever, do you remember? Yeah. Who was two? Oh, you, you actually. Oh, you in the front. You yes. numbered them, yeah. They'll go, and then, then we'll anyway. come to you. Yeah, sorry. Thank you. So uh, I really agree with a lot of the ideas that you presented, um, but I think that accessibility is key. I know you mentioned a story of someone from Tennessee who you disagree with greatly. On some things. You can, but you connect with them. And you mentioned that one in six people has a family member they talk to about politics. I think the phrase is, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of fear. Um, if you are giving this to just everyday Americans, people who aren't going to buy your book, or maybe you are not listen to podcasts, what are some things that we can seek out, actions, tangible items we can do that may set ourselves up being be more amendable to having these conversations, maybe just being more accessible to love, building hmm. existing connections? Are there things you see in American society that we should maybe latch to and participate in that makes these conversations easier? Hmm. Because I think hmm. the ideas are great, but you've got to just have people in the room in the beginning. If you don't have that connection with a person from Tennessee, yeah. that, that I'm, I don't know how deep-seated it is, but it seems like pretty, pretty well-established yeah. to, to defy conspiracy theories and still make you love that person. Yeah. Mm. Like, what are things we can see? How do we do it? How do we what, do this? How do we do it? The, what, if, you to, if you were to tell everyday Americans, what are things we can do that are going to make ourselves what, more amenable to what, what's the book about bowling with bowling, bowling alone that Bob Putnam's book bowling alone bowling alone by Bob Putnam is a professor yeah. at the Kennedy School at Harvard yeah. and, and he talks about building civil society and yeah. people doing things together doing things together but the key point is going where you're not invited and saying what they don't expect and listening with love expanding the range of people that you talk to it's, see, every pressure in America is to silo your news feeds, to close down your friend groups, to go to a university where people are, are like you, to go to a house of worship where people are like you. It's very easy to do that. It's getting it's easier and easier. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's, it's more comfortable and it's just easier between social media and the mobility of Americans and the way that we're self-sorting with respect to neighborhoods. It's easier to do. Don't do it. Go be, be a personal entrepreneur and go where people disagree with you, where you're not necessarily even invited, and say what they don't expect and listen with love. And that's the goal. And if you can do that, and by the way, it's so interesting. I've been, you know, I'm taking my own advice and my life is getting richer by the day. And you know where it is because each one of you knows how to expand the sphere of ideological viewpoints. Again, you might, just, you might change your mind on, some, on certain things. You might not. But it doesn't matter because your heart will grow if you do it right. So get outside of your comfort 
Totally, totally, go, on go, purpose. And go with someone. You don't have to go alone. You can go with someone. But but, yeah. but also, I think so, social things. We we are less social. You know, I if you go by when I played video games as a kid, we all showed up in the same house and played video games together. And now, if you go buy an Xbox or a a, a PlayStation or something, it comes with one controller. It the, the 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 video game doesn't even want you to play with a friend. And and I I have an Xbox and I was looking to play with a friend and I was I went to buy games that I could play with somebody. You know, and uh, I have a nephew, and he likes video games. You know, and uh, and they don't even the num they don't even sell them. You cannot. They it was I bought a second controller, and I struggled to find a video game that would allow me to play with a split screen with somebody in the same room. And this is a problem. I'm not anti video games, but why can't we make them that we can play with people in the same room? Um, when we go out for dinner, I mean, I'm I'm pretty staunch about this. Put the phones away when you're with somebody at a dinner table. You put the phones away when you're in a meeting. I don't mean just in your pocket. I mean turn it off, put it in airplane mode, leave it in the car. You don't need it at dinner. And I think we we are less social, and that breeds loneliness. And it and then the echo chambers and all the rest of it just just manifests mm. and grows. So for America, get out of your comfort totally. zone, but also be social. With yeah. Your yeah. Get out of your comfort zone with someone. Be alive. Yeah. Be there. Go take it. Yeah. Be present. Yeah. Let's take one more question, yes, and then we'll, we'll go. Front, I think we're in the front row yes. here, right? So oh, yeah. Yes. Yes, sir. Uh, my name is Dan. I'm the U.S. Director for Moral Comments. I, I really appreciate you going to raise this issue up. Thank Thanks. You. And my, my question is: so our research suggests that there is definitely this very large polarized population of Americans. There's actually a large segment who are not having their voice heard because they don't feel confident they can. Right. So I wonder if you could just speak to that audience for a bit and say what to those who are feeling the sense of inadequacy or are also struggling with the complexity of national conversations or issues, how do we engage them and get their voice in their you know, it's true, and, and but thank you for the work of Moral Common. I cited it. I cited a lot in my book, and I cite it in every talk. I, it's super important what you guys are doing. I mean, you you might actually be the research organization that starts the new movement, and I appreciate it a lot. Um, so a lot of people they feel devalued and they feel silent, and that but there's nothing new about that. You know, pre, that, but population groups at the margin of society have always been silenced and felt silenced. And the problem with being silent is that you don't, you don't have a sense of your own dignity. And when you don't have a sense of your own dignity, you're going to fight back. If you want to know how populism works, particularly in the wake of a financial crisis where people felt economically and socially silenced, you're going to see the bitterness that comes up and the disdain and the, and the adherence to the ideas of politicians who are little more than walking middle fingers to the other side. <laughs> it's unhelpful, right? But that you get it. You get it because they've been silent. So it's, it's a... It's an answer to an existential threat to democracy and, and to our civilized society that we don't listen to people, that we don't give people a voice. So it's, to me, it's less a question of how do, we, how do people get a voice when they don't have one. On the contrary, every single one of you in this room has power. You have disproportionate power and privilege. You're able to pay to come to see two you know, aging hipsters give a lecture at the 92nd Street Y. <laughs> Sorry, you're. I, mean, I am not a hipster, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not aging. So the, <clears throat> so you're you have power, and that means you have this big opportunity to give somebody a voice. It's amazing. You know, I was giving a lecture to a bunch of um, evangelical Christian kids, big group, and I asked them, you know, because the key thing to to dignity is being needed. 
that's actually be, not feeling needed, being needed. That's what gives you dignity. And when nobody needs what you think, nobody needs you economically, nobody needs you socially, and nobody needs your opinion, you will sense a lack of, lack of dignity and you will strike back. Okay, so I was asking this group of Christian kids, think about a group that, you, that needs something from you that you really don't need. Okay, who is it? And they were in, it was in New York City. And they said, homeless people, you know, homeless people. That's completely wrong. Because if you're evangelical Christians and you see a homeless person on the street, you need that person's prayers to keep you out of hell. That's Christian theology. You need something from every single person. And when you recognize your need of something from somebody at the periphery of our society, to quote Pope Francis, you will give that person a voice. And each one of you has the power to do that, uh, starting maybe right outside the 92nd Street Y when you leave tonight. I had an answer, and when I was listening to you, I decided to change it. Because you use the word existential threat. And that, a little flag went up for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that we were lucky, we were lucky, after... Uh, World War II, well, during World War II, we faced an existential threat, right? Which is what brought enemies together, uh, Stalin and the West, right? So shared, a shared threat. And then after the Second World War, we saw the rise of the Soviet Union, and there was a competing ideology. There was two competing ideologies looking for customers. And the two largest economies in the world, two largest militaries in the world, and, and these competing ideologies. And America still had all the infighting, and the intelligence services still fought with each other, and the politicians still fought with each other, but when push came to shove, we could come together with competing politics because the existential threat was shared. And when the, when the Berlin Wall came down, we lost the perception of the existential threat, of the external existential threat. And when we lost a reason to come together in common cause, we started to perceive each other as the enemies. By the way, this is how all empires fall. Uh, Rome flattened Carthage, and then Rome ripped itself to shreds. Um, um, and I, for one, think that perhaps one of the most, one of the best things that can happen to America is the rise of China the re-rise of Russia, um, because I think it will force us to recognize that there are things way more threatening to us than each other. And by the way, those threats, whether it's economic, nuclear, or, or uh, ideological, used to be conveniently co-located in a single uh, adversary called the Soviet Union, and now those threats are distributed. So we don't really fear nuclear war with China, but they definitely challenge our economy. And they're gonna just get ready for it. The United States has been the number one economy in the world since the, fall, uh, since, since, uh, the end of World War II. It's five years away, we're gonna be number two. Just, just get ready for it, because it's happening. If you go look at the numbers, the, the speed at which the Chinese economy is growing is unbelievable. We have a four-year plan, they have a thousand-year plan, right? Um, uh, we don't... Um, the, the nuclear threat 
comes from uh, another place that may not challenge us economically or ideologically, and the ideological threat now comes from another place. In other words, our Cold War 2.0 is a distributed threat, and we haven't wised up to that yet, that we cannot co uh, compete in the world today with outdated thinking from the Cold War, which is kind of what we're trying to do. We have a familiarity. We, we only joined the world order after World War II. We were isolationists prior. So everything we know about competing on a world stage, about being a superpower, comes from one experience, a focus group of one, right? So I think that... Um, How should I amend what I said when I said existential? What's better? No, no, I think you're right. Mm. I think that that is the right term. Mm. And the problem is we perceive each other as the existential threat. Mm. We have no perception of an external existential threat. And the more that we perceive each other uh, as the existential threat, we become, uh, our weaknesses become uh, exploitable to everyone who would do us harm outside. Unity is what we need to provide for the United States, for our society, for our community, for each other. The protection that we need to maintain the way of life, of freedom, opportunity, enterprise, unity, solidarity, and brotherhood, the things that we actually need the most. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm fond of saying in closed, behind closed doors, <laughs> whoops. Uh, I'm fond of saying behind closed doors, uh, to, to folks uh, in, in government and sometimes the military that Osama bin Laden won. Yeah, we killed him, so what? He made our entire country racist. Um, you know, uh, he, I thought you meant because we have to wait in the long TSA line. You mean something a lot worse No, than that, that too. That, no, yeah. no, and is forcing us to spend unbelievable amounts of money against a disproportionately small threat. But we have to because you have to, you can't not. That's the point. And the way that you, the way that you, um, you can't win an infinite game, um, but you exhaust your enemy of will and resources. Hmm. We're spending tons of money and we hate mm. each other. We're at each other's throats. Uh, and if we can't fix it ourselves, we'll be forced to fix it if we face another existential superpower threat from outside. I think it's a sad reality. I don't like the fact that I have this opinion. A last, my last thought, and maybe Simon's too, you, if you don't like that threat and you want to turn it into an opportunity, you need to love each other and you need to love more people. Let's do that together. I love you. I love you too. And I love you. Thanks again to Simon Sinek and the 92nd Street Y for facilitating that conversation. I hope you've enjoyed this season. I love talking about love. And if you like the show, hey, if you love the show, please tell a friend about it or rate it and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.